0: So at First City, uh, we talk a lot about identity. Uh, We all live from an identity. We understand that how you view your identity dictates much of the things you give your life to, the priorities that you have. And here's the thing that we also recognize about identity it does not exist in isolation. As John Dunn said, no man is an island, you're not on your own. You are not an utterly independent being. Identity is connected to community. It's the way that God wired us. It's the way that God wired the world. Think of any aspect of your identity, anything that is significant to who you are, and ask yourself this question. To what degree is that identity connected to other people? To what degree is that identity built on relationships to other people? Think of your family, significant part of your identity, obviously connected to other people. Perhaps your job, which in many ways we connect our identity to. Look, you're part of a company. You're part of a department. You're part of a a specific skill set. And so you're connected to other people. Perhaps you're a student. Well, then your identity is not just a student by themselves, but connected to your school, your classmates, your particular major, or perhaps your political party, or your nationality. We could go on and on. Whatever significant identity that we sort of give ourselves and find our significance in, our meaning in, it is going to be connected to other people. See, identity is communal. We can't escape it. Yes, you are a unique individual made in the image of God, but your identity is and is intended to be interconnected to others. What theology and philosophy and sociology and just good old-fashioned life experience tell us is that in many ways our longing for and chasing after identity is longing for and chasing after connection to others. We're wired to form our identity and community. And just as there are many different aspects of any person's identity, you're not just one thing. There are many different communities that we exist in, and those communities shape us in different ways. So one of the questions we have to ask when we think about identity is what community most shapes you? What community is most forming your identity? What community gives you most the sense of who you are and your purpose? How you answer this question is significant. How you prioritize which community gives you identity is significant. For example, men, you carry a number of identities. Many of you in here, your husbands, your fathers, you also have a job and a career. Depending on which community most defines you is going to significantly impact how you live your life. And it's going to have significant consequences for those around you. And so we have to answer this question, what community most shapes us? We can't escape the fact that identity is communal. And so as we think about this category of identity, as we think about who we are and what makes us who we are, we always have to bring in this category of community. So back in September, we did a series on our core values of gospel-centered. We are a gospel-centered church, and so we spent a month talking about what that means for us to be a gospel-centered church. How do we live that out? What are the components of that? And so, for the next three weeks, we're going to do a very short series on another core value of ours, which is community. We prioritize community as a core value because we believe Scripture clearly teaches that life in community is absolutely necessary for a Christian. The Bible has no category for a Lone Ranger Christian. If you belong to Christ, you belong to his people. And so, we value community, we put it right up front that this is our core value. We believe that Scripture teaches that just as your identity as a child of God is the defining aspect of your identity, the church is the defining community that shapes your identity. Let me say that again. We believe that just as, for those of you who are in Christ, that your identity as a child of God is the defining aspect of your identity, the defining community is the church. And you cannot understand, you cannot live out your identity as a child of God, your identity as being in Christ, without understanding and living out life in community. And so that is why we're going to spend the next three weeks just spend reflecting on what it means that we are a community. Now, look, this doesn't mean that other communities that you are a part of are unimportant. No, some are very, very important. So we want to celebrate those. But what this does mean is that the church is the community that shapes you most and shapes how you interact in those other communities. And so we're going to reflect. What does it mean that we are a community? What does it mean to be a part of the community of God? And so this morning, we're going to just take some time reflecting on who we are. What does it mean to be a part of the people of God? What what are the identities that we have? What is kind of the core identity that we have as those who belong to the people of God. And then next week, we're going to spend some time reflecting on the truth that you need the church. If you are in Christ, you need the church. And then two weeks from now, Pastor Paul is going to reflect on the truth that the church needs you. So it's a two-way street. You need the church, but the church also needs you. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next three weeks. So before we jump in, let me state a couple things that I have hopes for in this series uh, by addressing several groups of people. First, for those of you who are members of First City, my hope is that we grow more and more rooted in our identity in Christ by growing more and more rooted in our identity as a community. I want us to recognize that we are connected to one another and that deeply shapes us, that matters. Those of you who are members of this church, those of you who are connected to this church, you know this overwhelming truth that living in community is messy it's hard. You get a lot of bumps and bruises doing this thing. And sometimes we lose sight. Sometimes we ask questions like, why am I doing this? What's the point? So I want us to take a step back. I want us to actually lift our gaze to see what God is doing, what God has done, and what he has called us into. I want us to see the beauty of community. I want us to see the beauty of this community, the beauty of God's plan, what he has accomplished in Christ. I don't want community to be just another catchphrase that we use, just Christianese, just something that we take for granted. I want it to be something that we deeply connect with and understand what that means. For those of you that aren't members of the church, but maybe you're here and you're sort of figuring out if this is the church for you, if you're in process, well, I want us to be able to sort of lay out, hey, this is who we are and this is what we believe. I think anybody deciding to join a church should make a really good informed decision and take their time, and I want to help with that. I want to say, hey, this is what First City's about. This is what we're committed to. This is how we view ourselves. And so if you're going to call this church your home, if you're going to commit here as a member, you sort of know all cards on the table. I also want to encourage you, whether it is this church or God calls you to another gospel preaching church, that you get excited about being in community. You get excited about what God intends for you in community. You're excited about the plan of God to save a people. But For those of you that... here, and maybe you're dragging your feet about membership. Maybe you're dragging your feet. Maybe you've been around long enough, and you know whether or not this is the church for you, but you're not deciding. You're not really pulling the trigger one way or another. I want to lovingly push you. I want to lovingly say, hey, look, obedience to Christ means committing to a local church, and whether it is this church or God is calling you to another one, commit. Stop dating the church. Get committed to the church. Find one and join with a community on mission. And so I want to challenge some people. I, w- I, want to, I want to raise the bar, so to speak, of, hey, this is what it means to be in community. And I want you to sort of feel some, hey, I'm not committed to one yet. And I'm sort of dragging my feet on that. And that's not a good thing. So I want to lovingly challenge you. Finally, I know that there are some in here that me talking about the centrality of the church and pushing on commitment to the church might make you feel a little uncomfortable because you have had some bad experiences. You've been hurt by the church. You've experienced uh, leadership that was heavy-handed, leadership that was overbearing, leadership that was ungodly, and you're wearing the scars. You're wearing the emotional pain. You don't trust the church. You don't trust leaders. And for a pastor to stand up here and start talking about being committed to the church, you're like, I'm not trusting you, man. Look, this is not me keeping condemnation on you. This is not me trying to guilt you into getting past your pain and saying, hurry up, move along, get over yourself. No, rather, I want to help you heal. Here's how. I want to give you a glimpse of what God intends his church to be. I want to give you a glimpse of God's purpose. And yes, look, being in the church is messy. It's full of sinners. You're going to get hurt. But there is such thing as a healthy church community. There is such thing as a healthy leadership. There is such thing as a place where you can grow and thrive in your faith. And I wanna remind you of that. I wanna encourage you in that. I wanna lift your gaze to Christ in his glory and his goodness and help you take your eyes off those broken, sinful men that hurt you. And so I wanna encourage you as well. So no matter where you are this morning, whatever your relationship is to a local church, God's word has something for us this morning. And by his spirit and by his word, he will do some work in us. And so let's reflect on First Peter here too and see what scripture holds out for us as who we are as the people of God. Now, those of you that were here a couple of years ago may remember that we went through a series in First Peter. And so we've actually gone through this book a little bit more in depth. And so when we went through this passage, we talked about some of the same themes and issues. I'm going to tackle this a little bit differently than I, than I did back a couple of years ago, but I, I know that I need to lay down a little bit of context just to kind of help us understand what's going on in this passage. And so if you remember, the context of 1 Peter is he is writing to persecuted Christians. He's writing to those who are being opposed by religious and political leaders for their faith. And so he's trying to remind them, one, who they are, but also reminding them what God has done And in light of that, how they ought to live in the midst of persecution. In 1 Peter 2, and especially in these verses 9 and 10, Peter is contrasting these believers with those who oppose God. He's saying, unlike those who oppose God, unlike those who hate Christ, you are the people of God. Unlike those who will not put their faith in Christ, do not believe that they need a Savior those who, whether are following their religious self-righteousness or those who are just headlong into their sin, you are the people of God. And he uses some very, very potent language to describe who they are. He actually pulls on specific words and phrases from the Old Testament to describe the church. So labels like in verse 9, such as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, those are all taken directly from the Old Testament, specifically from passages in the Old Testament where God talks about his people in relation to him redeeming them. God labels his people these things in light of his redemption of them. And so in Exodus 19:4 and 6, 4 through 6. After he delivers the nation of Israel from Egypt, this is what God tells them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So God delivers. He saves Israel and says, This is in light of me saving you. This is who you now are. You're my treasured possession. You're a holy nation unto me. You're a kingdom of priests to me. And then in Isaiah 43, 19 to 21, this is God redeeming Israel from the exile. It says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, in rivers, in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The word there, literally, race. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. See, the Lord set his love on Israel and brought redemption to them that they might be his. He delivered them from political oppression, but also delivered them from sin and the curse of their rebellion because he loved them and he desired good things for them. He desired to bring them into a relationship with him and to bless them with that rich relationship of knowing and belonging to him, the blessing of worshiping and communing with him the blessing of walking in holiness and righteousness, the blessing of being a race, a nation, a people that loved and served the Lord as priests and loved and served one another. See, these markers, these, these labels that God used spoke to Israel being a redeemed people. They were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession because they were a redeemed people, and Peter uses the same language to describe the church. He uses the same labels. And so the good news for us is that the special relationship of love and deliverance between the Lord and Israel in the Old Testament is now applied in the New Testament to the church, to those who are in Christ. And what we see here is one plan, one people. What started in Israel has now expanded to all nations in the church. And the beauty of this the beauty of these labels is what they point to if you are in Christ, if for us who are in Christ, we are a redeemed people. You see, the deliverance of Egypt, as amazing as that was, was pointing to something greater. The deliverance that God brought Israel out of exile was just pointing to something greater, the deliverance that he accomplished in Christ. And so for you and I who are in Jesus... You and I who have put our faith and trust in Christ, you and I, we're redeemed. We're a redeemed people. That marks us more than any other identity marker. We're marked as redeemed people, those God has set his love on. Christ stepped into our world to walk in perfect obedience and righteousness for us. He offered up his life willingly to die on behalf of, for, for our sin, and the judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be transformed, so that we could be cleansed, we could be healed, that we could be resurrected. Christ came to redeem a people. That's what Peter is pointing to here. The language is all communal. The language is all that of a community. And so for those of us who are in Christ, God has set his particular love on us to deliver us from oppression, the oppression of evil, from the guilt and shame of sin, so that we would be a part of his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. We would be a part of his people, starting with Israel, but now fulfilled in the church. God's plan has always been to save a people. And so as Eric pointed out, man, we talk a lot about having a personal relationship with Jesus, and that's true, We have our own walk with the Lord, but we're never saved in isolation. We are saved to a community. Now, I think it's worth mentioning briefly this word chosen. Maybe some of you, you saw that word and you haven't heard a single word that I've said because you're just like, what does that mean? That word causes so much controversy, right? Guess what? This is not the sermon to address the controversy. (laughs) If you want... Back when we went through the book of 1 Peter, the very first sermon in the series, I talked about the word chosen and what it means. Now, I'm not going to dive into all the nuances, but I am going to highlight that. It's worth talking about because this word carries an important punch. Peter uses it multiple times in his letter, and he does it for a reason. The reason he does it is to give these Christians confidence. Look, these believers, just like you and I, face trial face opposition, face a lot of things that cloud our vision, that shake our confidence, things that cause us to worry and to doubt, things that can cause us to chase after other things to to build our identity in. And by using this strong term, chosen, what Peter is pointing to is that God has an eternal fixed plan to save people. God has set his particular love on sinners and that that plan, that salvation is unbreakable. That plan, that salvation is meant to ground and anchor us in the midst of all that trial, all that tribulation. If you are in Christ, you are chosen by God. The reason you are in Christ is because God chose you and God choosing you means had nothing to do with you. That's good news for you. That's good news because what that means is it's not of your own good works. It means that you didn't have to perform for God. And it also means that he has you. Oh, he planned before the foundation of the world to save you. And none of your idiocy, none of your sin, none of the trials of life or the opposition of men who are dust is going to change his love and his plan. And so this word chosen, man, let's let's move past the controversy and see what it's meant to be. Man, God has me. God has us. God has planned to save a people, and he has his people. He's not going to turn his back on them. He's not going to abandon them or fail them. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how challenging it gets, no matter how much you and I fall into sin, his love is relentless because in eternity past, he decided and he chose, and he acted. That is what is meant here. And so to say we are a chosen people should give us a lot of confidence. It should humble us. Oh, it should humble us. As Peter writes in verse 10, once we were not a people, but now we are a people. Once we hadn't received mercy, but now we have received mercy, and nothing to do with you and me. That is God's love, God's mercy, to send Christ save us. And so church, as we recognize that we are a redeemed people, we recognize that we are a chosen people, and that all points to God's love and God's care and God's power for us, and that we can rest in that. And so to be part of the church, to be part of the people of God, gives us tremendous amounts of just comfort and rest because of God's goodness and his mercy. What this also points to is that the church, the people of God, is no, are no accident. In fact, this group, the, the, this community, is central to God's purposes in the world. It points to the fact that this is God's plan. This is God's plan A. Look, the church is not plan B. The church is not um, some contingency plan. No, the church is central to God's plan. This is the community. In all of its flaws and all of its brokenness, this is still God's plan and God's purpose. I love the way that John Stott writes about this. Beautifully captures the nature of the church. This is what he writes: The church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought, it is not an accident of history. Like A bunch of men didn't get together a couple thousand years ago and invent this thing called the church and it's kept it going for a few thousand years. No, this is of God. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness. I love the way he puts that. God didn't just save us so we could continue being lonely and just being a bunch of individuals. No, he saved us rather to build his church. That is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory. God's purpose is to save a people. And God redeems, and he empowers, and he protects, and he perfects his people. That's our hope. That's our identity. That is core to who we are as a redeemed people. And so, moving from that sort of core category of redeemed, Peter then uses several other labels to describe the people of God. The first is a chosen race. And another way that we could say this is that the people of God go deeper than DNA. See, what the ancient world understood, and I think we understand to some degree, but maybe a little less so, is that race has been a starting place for identity. Race binds people together. Shared physical DNA binds people together. It is what binds families together, historically speaking. If if you kind of look at the history of the world, individual families have been seen as part of a race, which is kind of a larger family, all sharing a particular DNA. And so this is sort of speaking to kind of the fundamental physical aspect of our identity. You are a particular race that is embedded in your DNA. That's fundamental to who you are. And if we see throughout history, race binds people together not only in DNA, but also cultures and customs and family life and religious practice has all been tied one way or another to race, historically speaking. When God saved Israel, he saved at a time a particular race of people and set their customs and their family life and their religious life. And so this is just an aspect of the way the world is. And so the, the dynamic is largely true today. You go to particular nations with particular races that have particular customs, particular rigid, religious practices. Now, some of those lines have been blurred. Let's, let's be honest about the situation today. Because of the fact that we can travel much easier and that there, the, the immigration that has taken place over decades and centuries, some of these lines between race and culture get blurred. But there's still an aspect where these two things are tied together. And Peter is sort of pulling on this concept in order to make a point. See, race dictates much about identity. And what it also does is it divides. So much of the division historically that has taken place in our world has been along along racial lines. And we see that flaring up even in our own culture. In the great melting pot that is the United States, racial lines are still flaring up. It's an inescapable part of our reality of living in a fallen world that we divide over race. And here's what Peter is driving at. First, to use that term, to, to sort of raise that specter of race and the ways that it could potentially divide but then injects it with an entirely different meaning, not along physical DNA, but spiritual DNA. By calling the church, the church which is made up of all tongues, tribes, nation, races, to call that mix a race speaks to something far greater than genetic DNA. He's speaking about spiritual DNA, something deeper than just our chromosomes and whether you are of European heritage, or African heritage, or Asian heritage. He's talking about the spiritual DNA of the family of God. And so here's what we need to understand. Here's what we need to recognize about the church. The church, by very nature, is intended to be a family made up of a wonderful diversity, made up of a beautiful array from every tribe, tongue, and nation. See that beautiful picture in the book of Revelation? That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of Christ. Now, let me be clear. This doesn't mean that the gospel smashes racial difference. It doesn't mean that we all have to become monoracial in the sense that there is no such thing as race. No, there's a beautiful diversity that the gospel unites us in. And so we celebrate our race, but we do it in a way that doesn't exclude. Celebrating diversity, celebrating difference, when we're united together in Christ, becomes just that celebration, not division. And that is what the church is to be. The people of God are united by something far deeper than our DNA, far deeper than just culture and custom. We're united by Christ, and that brings us together into a family. It fundamentally changes the sort of the ground zero for our identity. Changes the ground zero for our, com- the number one community. And in doing that, it allows us this wonderful, beautiful diversity. And so First City Church, look, talking about racial diversity in the church right now is a hot topic. It's, it's very popular. And in some ways, that's very good. Because it's, sadly, the church has been far too segregated for far too long. But there's ways to talk about it and ways to do it that are pretty Superficial. We can, we can chase after this just merely in appearance. We can chase after this merely kind of on a surface level. Or we can really learn to embrace one another. We can really learn to embrace diversity. And that only happens when we get up close and personal with each other. That only happens when we love each other despite differences. That only happens when we take time to learn about one another and celebrate things that are different. Celebrate that, hey, I don't see the world like everybody else. And I have different experiences. Yes, we're united by Christ. Yes, we're under the authority of the word of God. But when we are committed to one another in love, when we see that Christ has brought us together, when he has smashed the dividing uh, wall of hostility, that allows us to go deeper than DNA. That allows us to be connected to each other in ways that are far greater than anything man-made. And in a society that is experiencing racial conflict once again, look, policy can be helpful, law can be helpful, but what we've learned in this country over the past 200 some years is it doesn't change the heart of men. The only thing that does that is the gospel. And so we can care about justice. We can care about laws that give equal opportunity, but the only thing that's going to really unite people is the gospel. And so church... We are that community. We're called to be that race, united in spiritual DNA, in this wonderful, beautiful diversity. Next, he calls us a holy nation. This reflects that we have a loyalty to a greater nation. If you remember from 1 Peter 2, part of the book is Peter encouraging these Christians to be upstanding citizens. Like he's saying, hey, don't be rebellious. Don't be troublemakers. Don't be those who just because the government is opposing you, you turn around and give the government a hard time. No, be upstanding citizens. Care about peace. Live righteously in society. And so there is a responsibility and a loyalty that we should have to our country. We should care about this country. We should care about justice in this country. We should care about this country thriving and people who are part of it thriving. Many of you in this room, you give your very life to serve our country in the military. That's a good thing. So we care deeply about the nation we are a part of. We're part of this world. At the same time, that is not the community that most defines us. That is not the nation that most defines us. Because hear me on this. The United States, all the ways that God has blessed this country, the United States is not the holy nation of God. That is the church. Peter is not talking prophetically about the United States here. He's talking about the church. The United States is not the holy nation of God. The United States, just like every other nation, will someday pass. The only eternal nation, the only eternal kingdom is the kingdom of God and his church. And so let's properly recognize where our priority lies. Let's be good citizens. Let's care deeply about what happens in this country. Let's serve and, and fight for, in a good way, justice and righteousness and, and good laws in, in, a, in a society that is peaceful. Let's give our lives to defending freedom all across the world. These are all good things, but let's recognize at the end of the day our deepest loyalty and the thing that most shapes us is this community that God has called us to. It is the kingdom of God that we've been brought into. And so church, let me, let me press here for a second because the civil religion of our country is definitely politics. Does your political party define you more than your identification with the church? Do, do, do you get more amped up about arguing with that liberal or arguing with that Republican, more so than you get excited about serving your brother or sister or sharing the gospel with someone. Look, I'm not trying to lay guilt trips on you. I'm not trying to one-up you here. I'm just asking you to reflect. Who has your heart? What has your heart? A kingdom, a nation that is going to pass, or a kingdom and a nation that will be Eternal. A kingdom and a nation that God purchased with his own blood. A kingdom and a nation that is the central plan and purpose of the one true God. And so we can be politically involved. We can care deeply about politics. I love talking politics. I get fired up about politics. But if my hope, if my identity is being shaped by this nation then I'm missing a greater identity. I'm missing a greater community. I'm missing a greater nation that God has called me into. And so let's be those who are shaped by this community, this nation that God has called us together, the church, be shaped by his kingdom. Finally, calls us a royal priesthood, meaning we are those who serve God. What are priests? They're servants of God. Those who serve on behalf of the Lord. Those who stand between God and others. And so we are a people as a church. Every single one of us who are part of the church, we are priests to our God. Which means we serve God in all things. It means that whatever other identity that we have, whether you are a husband or a wife, a mother or a father, son or daughter, an employee or a boss, part of this country or another country, whatever it may be, that identity is filtered through and shaped by the truth that you are a servant of God, that that your call in life is to glorify God, to worship God, and to proclaim to others about his glory, that your call in life is to serve others in the name of Jesus. And so as priests, this defines our purpose. Look, as a race, that defines our community. As, as, as a nation, that, that again defines our community and defines our loyalty. And as priests, this defines our purpose. We, we, we are called to be servants of God. We are called to find all of our identity in loving and serving God and loving and serving others. And, and this gets at the point at the end of what Peter is saying where he says that we have been called to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Like in all of these things that we do, living as a community that goes deeper than racial DNA, as a community that has a deeper loyalty to the kingdom of God, which keeps us from getting into all the vitriol and hatred that can take place in politics. And for laying down our lives and serving and loving other people, even at the cost of ourselves, that all declares something. Hey, there's something greater. There's something truer. There's something more beautiful. There's a greater identity and a greater community that I can be a part of. And so church, being priests is a beautiful, beautiful identity that we've been called into. It's an incredible privilege and we do this together. We're a priesthood. That means we do this together. We link arm in arm. We're not isolated. We're not on our own. We love and serve together. So what most defines you? What, what, what community most shapes how you live your life? Is it your DNA? Is it, is it your race? Is it identity politics? What, what group most has your loyalty? Is it your political party? Is it some other group that you find your identity in, that you give your entire loyalty to? What, what, what community shapes your purpose? What, what gives you direction in life? What helps you to see who you truly are and what you've been called to live for? Here Peter lays out for the church this identity of who we are, an identity that is deeper than racial DNA, a loyalty that is to a greater nation and a greater kingdom than the kingdoms of this earth and a purpose far greater than any other job or career or calling that you could have. And so church, I, again, I know this is not easy. I know we can sort of have this idealized view of this wonderful community where we're all in perfect unity and everybody's serving and loving one another and we're all sharing the gospel every chance we get and it's just like, oh man, the perfect church. Hey, until Christ comes back, we're all in process. But this does not negate that this is who we are and this is who Christ is making us and this is what he is calling us into and bit by bit he's transforming us into. And so this church, I want to hold out in front of us. This is what I want us to root our identity in, this kind of community. And so one, let us find our identity in this community. Let this be the community that shapes and, and filters and colors how we see all other communities and all other identities. But then let's also give ourselves to seeing this happen. Let's give ourselves to the very thing that Christ has started and brought us together to live out. And in doing that, let's proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the city that others may become part of this community. Look, we're not hiding in isolation. We're not saying, okay, hey, here's all the Christians. Let's go over in the corner and just sort of keep the world out. No, we go. We put this on display. We declare because we want others to be part of this community and to know the love of Christ and find their identity in him. Amen.